Please turn in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 20. This morning we will be looking at verses 19 through 26. Luke 20, verses 19 through 26, please give your full attention to the Word of God. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Well, Tuesday is election day. And there are some significant votes to be cast, especially here in Pennsylvania. I've seen many times, as I've been watching TV, I've seen many times an ad on one of the news networks where the commentator says dramatically, this election could change history. Well, I'm going to say the same thing to you this morning that I had to say to myself the other night when the Phillies were losing 3-2 to two in the ninth inning and Bryce Harper was up to bat. This is not the most important moment in history. From a historical perspective, we find great peace and joy to come together to worship as the people of God this morning, recognizing that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. God raises up kings and he casts them down. But the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ is forever. Phil Riken, who was formerly the pastor of 10th PCA Church in Philadelphia, and he's currently the president of Wheaton College, he once said, if you want to start a good argument, start talking about religion or politics. But if you want to start a war, then bring your religion into politics. Well, history testifies to the truth of that statement. Much of European history is characterized by Rulers and civil government using religion to advance their political ends. And at the same time, church leaders using politics towards their own religious goals. And really, that was the genius, wasn't it, of the founding fathers of our country. They looked at what they had experienced in Europe and how the confusion of church and state had led to all of these religious wars, and so much of history is characterized by this kind of confusion of powers. And the genius of our founding fathers was that they sought to 
identify different spheres of authority of the state and the church. Unfortunately, recent generations have seen, as you've heard the phrase said, that not the separation of church and state, which in a certain way, rightly understood, is correct and biblical, but a separation of, relig of religion from the state, that you're not allowed to bring your religious views into public discourse, let alone politics, and that's so much the way that our culture thinks today. Well, it's impossible. Your religious views determine your worldview, and your worldview determines the choices you make, including the votes that you cast on election day. Since Jesus isn't on the ballot this week, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. But I couldn't believe this one. I sat down to look at the passage that I had to prepare for on Monday for this Sunday, for this Sunday's sermon, how the Lord had arranged it, because I certainly didn't plan it. You know, as, I break up, we, as we work to break up the scripture passage, I had no intention of putting it this way, but I had to preach on Jesus' statement, one of the most profound statements he makes on church and state two days before we have to go to the polls for an election. I'd uh, love to avoid talking politics in this forum, but what Jesus says here in this passage has real severe implications for how we operate in a political world. What Jesus says here in this passage is one of the most important statements in Scripture about the relationship between religion and politics, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, the kingdoms of men. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Such a simple statement, but that is a profound foundational statement for understanding how politics and faith, how the church and state relate to one another. It is admittedly a broad principle, but it's a broad principle that brings together all the scripture's teaching and gives us one of the most important ideas to guide us as we try to figure out what it means to be a citizen of kingdoms on this earth at the same time that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. What is the biblical foundation for civil government? Because when Jesus makes this statement, he's assuming that his listeners are aware of what the Old Testament teaches about the purpose of the civil government, the purpose of the state. There are many things that we can draw, many things that are unique to Old Testament history, but there are many principles that are established there, and Jesus is assuming that we know and understand and agree with those principles as he makes this statement about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Go back to the beginning. Genesis 1. Before sin entered into the world. Before Adam and Eve rebelled against God's law. Before the fall, there was no need for human government. Because human government is external. Human government coerces obedience to what is right. But before the fall, there was no need for human government because Adam and Eve obeyed from the heart. They had an internal compulsion to do the will of God. But after they sinned, after they rebelled, human beings became prideful. Human beings became depraved, selfish to the core. And that's why when you get to Genesis chapter 6, Without human, very became 
It says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not describing something that was unique to that period of history. That's describing human depravity as a result of the fall. That is still human, the nature of human beings apart from God's grace. Every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And so God sent a worldwide judgment. Through the flood, he destroyed humanity except for the grace that he showed to one family, the family of Noah. And when the flood was taken away and Noah and his family set foot on the earth, God gave them a promise, a covenant. He formed a covenant relationship with them. And in that covenant that God formed with Noah and his family, he reiterated what was given in the covenant with Adam to fill the earth, subdue it, to rule over the earth under the authority of God himself. But then he also adds an element that wasn't there before. And he gives what we would call the seeds of human government. A external force to keep human behavior under somewhat control so that the history of mankind can go forward so that salvation could happen. The covenant with Noah is sometimes called the covenant of preservation because in it, God establishes human government as one of the means by which he restrains the wickedness of mankind. And that is its purpose. In chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, as part of the covenant promise, God says to Noah and his family, for your lifeblood I will require, require a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now that is the passage that we go to when people ask us, why would people who are pro-life by our own definition also be in favor of the death penalty? It's because murder is the greatest desecration of the image of God. Men and women are created in the image of God and murder desecrates that image and it is worthy of our greatest penalty. And that's the basis on which we establish the government having the right to exercise capital punishment. It's what the scriptures call the power of the sword, the power to take a life in retribution and punishment, just punishment for the taking of another life. But all biblical scholars recognize that this was the beginning of what we call civil government, that God put civil government in place for a very limited purpose, to restrain wickedness, to discourage wickedness, to maintain justice and to maintain order so that humanity can continue to exist. Imagine what humanity is like. I've always wondered what an anarchist's ideal of human society would look like because without human government to restrain wickedness, the depravity of man would take over just like it did before the flood. Paul builds upon this idea that's in the covenant with Noah, he builds upon it and assumes it when he teaches in Romans 13 about the relationship between Christians and the state or the government that's over them. He says in Romans 13, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Speaking of the government official, the one with the authority of the civil government, he says he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Those who have civil authority as part of human government are appointed by God whether they acknowledge it or not. And they're accountable to God for the authority that's been delegated to them whether they acknowledge it or cooperate with that or submit to that or not. Just because in our experience and really throughout human history, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, we know that human beings in their depravity tend to abuse the power of government authority, and history is full of the testimony to that. But just because that authority is abused and misused, that doesn't mean that the authority itself is not legitimate. We need, in a fallen world full of depraved sinners, we need human government as a restraint upon wickedness and to preserve humanity so that God's purposes in working out the plan of salvation can be accomplished. Understand that's the reason government is here, is to keep order in society so that God's plan for his people to bring the message of the gospel to the world can happen until Christ comes back and fulfills all his, his promises and the kingdom of God that we already are a part of spiritually, those who know and trust his king, will become a reality in all of life. Now let me stop here and state something that has been really helpful to me to realize when it comes to thinking about politics or church and state. This is what I've found as I've studied the different political theories that are out there today and the ones throughout history. Where political theories always go wrong is in two ways. First of all, they do not understand human nature. They do not understand the depravity of humankind. And so their solutions, if you get the, 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 you diagnose the problem wrongly, your, your solution's also gonna be wrong. Most government theories rely on the fact that mankind's nature is basically good, but that's not what the Bible teaches. So that's the first thing they get wrong, is as well. So, moving on then through Old Testament history, God called the family of Abraham to represent the coming kingdom. Abraham's kingdom where God's king would rule on God's throne by God's law over God's people. Abraham's family was to become a nation. And the Old Testament church, Israel, became a holy nation. A nation set apart from the nations to belong to God. And it was what we in theology call a theocracy. God was the king. And it was led by First of all, God is king, and then when they demanded to have a king like the other nations, he gave them a human king to represent him, and then you had prophets, you had priests. And altogether, they were working to lead God's people, but that wasn't the model for the kingdoms of this world. That was the model for the kingdom of God. Israel was to be the earthly representation of what the coming kingdom of God in all of its fullness, when the plan of salvation was complete, Israel was to be that before the nations of the world, the light on a hill. But of course, they failed to be that because of their desire to be like the nations in, in their sinfulness. They worshiped the gods, the idols of other nations. And they rejected God's law and lived according to the standards of this world. And so God eventually, after centuries of warnings, brought judgment upon them and he took away their status as a nation and he had their people taken away as captive to live as exiles in Assyria and Babylon. 
And from that point on, God's people lived under the domineering authority of some foreign oppressor. Never again did you have a theocracy like under David and Solomon. God's people from that point on would live to one degree as exiles. Now, there was a short period under the Maccabees where they were free, but that was a very temporary and kind of superficial freedom. From that point on, they were not under the theocracy, but under some Roman, pagan, Greek philosophy, or, uh, uh, kingdom that they served. They were a vassal state. And so when Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon, he told them, this is how you live under a foreign government. He said to them, beginning in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." And there you see the beginnings of what living as citizens of the kingdom of God looks like when you're under a foreign pagan government. And that's the reality you have. That's the, the context in which this confrontation happens between the Jewish leadership and Jesus. In the first century, the Jews were back in the land. Not all of them, but some of them were back in the land. But... They are under the boot of the Romans. They are under the full authority of the Roman Empire. And so the leaders who were getting more and more angry as we look into these passages in these last couple of chapters, they're getting more and more angry at Jesus. He had just told a parable against them where they, he accused them of plotting to murder him, essentially, in the parable of the wicked tenants. They're so angry, they resort to deception to try to bring him down to destroy him, to ruin his following, and possibly have a basis for handing him over to the Romans. And so they send spies. Luke calls them spies, which meant that they presented themselves in a deceptive way. They pretended, Luke says, to be among Jesus' devout followers, hungry students wanting to hear truth from Jesus, as though they were submitting to his lordship. But it says in verse 23, as they approached him with flattery, trying to get him to let down his guard as though he were some just normal human teacher, it says in verse 23, Jesus saw their hearts and intentions and perceived their craftiness. It's amazing how they just could not, time and time again, Jesus saw the hearts of people and addressed the hearts because he's the son of God and yet people did not recognize who he was. And so at this point, the spies try to spring their trap, their verbal trap. They ask Jesus, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar, the Roman emperor, or not? Now, this may be hard for you to believe that oppressive taxes was a hot topic back in that day. And it still is. It always has been. Governments tend to overuse and abuse their authority and oppressed with taxes, and that was certainly happen, happening within Judea. The Romans, their taxes were hated, despised, seen as oppressive by the Jews. One scholar tried to determine how much of a Jewish person's income 
a Jewish family's income was taken by the Romans through all the different taxes and customs that they had to pay, and they came up with a figure of about one-third. One-third of an annual income for a Jewish person would have been taken by the Romans, let alone all the other obligations they had to the temple and everything else. Actually, they've made an estimate that if you add up all the different kind of taxes that we pay, it's about 40% of our income. So we can empathize of why they were so angry about it, why it was such a hot topic. And interesting, you know, if you look at it from the leader's perspective, as they sent these spies to ask this question, they saw it as a win-win situation. No matter what Jesus Jewish people was kind of like the division in our country during the time of the colonies, where you had Tories or loyalists advocated rebellion. And so in Judea, you had the zealots who advocated rebellion against Rome and actually carried out several different kinds of rebellion during the time of Jesus around that era. And then, of course, you had the Sadducees and the Herodians who tended to cooperate and even support the Roman government. And then you had everybody else in between trying to figure out what's right, much like our own situation. And so if Jesus says, if he, if he were to answer the question, yes, you should pay your taxes to Rome, then he would lose all credibility with his followers because they were coming to embrace him as the Messiah. And what was the Messiah expected to do? Conquer the Romans. Drive out the Romans. Establish the throne in Jerusalem with Israel as the center of all earthly power. That's what they expected from the Messiah. And if Jesus said, no, pay your taxes to Rome, he would lose the vast majority of his followers. And that's one thing that the Jewish leaders hoped for. But if Jesus said, Jesus said, I'm sorry, if he, if he said no, that's what, that's what uh, they would, the crowd would leave him. Um, but if he said, oh boy, sorry, my mind's, Foggy here. What did I say? If he, let me back up. If he said, yes, pay your taxes, then his followers would leave him. I had that right. If he said no, then they would have the basis for accusing him of insurrection before the Romans. And they certainly, that's one of their greatest hope, because then they could turn him over to the authority of the Romans to be executed. And interestingly, that is exactly what happened. Even though he didn't say in this occasion, that you should not pay the taxes. We'll see that in a moment. In chapter 23, verse 2, it says, The Sanhedrin said to Pilate, when Jesus stood in trial before Pilate, they said, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So they accused him of it anyway. But Jesus doesn't answer the question with an either-or. That's part of the problem. They saw it as either-or. Either you support the Roman emperor or you obey God. Jesus says, show me a denarius. A denarius was what they paid the poll tax with, the head tax was a denarius, which was a day's income for a common laborer. And he said, What's, whose likeness and inscription does it have on a denarius? And of course, if you were to see a denarius, on the one side, it had the head of the Roman emperor. And on the back side of the coin, it had a picture of the Roman emperor sitting on the throne. And the inscription that Jesus asked about, what it said with words on the coin, was to declare the Roman emperor to be a god. 
And so just to give you an idea of what was actually on the denarius. So who is on the denarius? The obvious answer is, well, that's Caesar. And so Jesus says, here's the principle. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He doesn't support the Romans unconditionally and he doesn't support rebellion. He reiterates what the Old Testament taught about the purpose of civil government and our relationship to our creator and our redeemer. All in that statement. In that statement, he's saying that government has a delegated, God-given authority that is limited on earth and therefore has a right to our taxes. But human beings are made in God's image. And so all that we are and all that we have belong to him. See, Jesus here is preparing his disciples to live as exiles. How many times in the New Testament does it tell us that as citizens of the spiritual kingdom, remember what Jesus said to Pilate? My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. That's why my followers aren't rising up in rebellion against the the Jews or the Romans. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And we are to live as exiles, aliens, pilgrims, sojourners. Those are the titles given to citizens of the kingdom of God while they live among the kingdoms of men. And so we need to then ask a question. What is Jesus saying to us about our responsibilities? What does it mean to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's? What does it mean to render unto God the things that are God's? We look to God's word for that answer, not to Caesar. Caesar doesn't determine what belongs to Caesar. God determines what belongs to Caesar, and God determines what belongs to God. According to Scripture, government is here to maintain justice, restrain evil, promote order and structure in society so that the purpose of God through his church in salvation can go forward. So what are we to do as aliens while being citizens of the kingdoms of men, while we are ultimately a part of citizens of the kingdom of God. First of all, Scripture tells us, pay your taxes. Really sorry to pass that message along, but it's straight out of Scripture. Pay your taxes. Jesus paid his taxes. Did you know that? Had a little help from a fish, but he did pay his taxes. In Romans 13... Paul says, the ruler is God's servant for your good, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Pay to all that is owed, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Pay your taxes. God has given government for his purposes, which is to complete his work of salvation. Pay your taxes so government can do its job even if it doesn't do it well, even if it asks for more taxes than it should. Secondly, pray for your rulers. New Testament is very clear about this. As alien citizens of the kingdoms of men, pray for the rulers that are appointed over you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, Paul says to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. One of the most important things, one of the most important responsibilities you have as a Christian citizen is to pray for those who rule over you. How often do you do it? How often do you do it? I suppose that if we 
prayed for our leaders about half as much as we complained about them, we would be a lot more content, a lot less bitter, and a lot better witness to our culture. Thirdly, scriptures teach us to submit to the rulers that God has placed over us. I'm going to explain in a minute that that's a limited submission, but it's real. We are to be the most obedient citizens in our whole neighborhood. Most concerns to submit to the legitimate requirements of human government. This goes all the way back to the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. And every catechism, every theologian would tell you that honor your father and mother means submit to the earthly authorities that God has placed over you. It broadens beyond your home to the country that you live in, the civil authorities that you live under. Unless there be any doubt, Paul spells it out in that same chapter, Romans 13, verse 1, when he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We'll talk about the limitations on that authority in just a moment. But the last thing positively that we're told to do as citizens of Christ's kingdom, living as aliens in the kingdoms of men, is to serve. Serve our neighborhood. Serve our community. Serve our state. Serve our nation. Jeremiah 29 spells it out. This is how alien citizens of the kingdom of God live in a foreign land. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, God says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. When the government does its job, peace and order will be in place so that we can fulfill the mission, the calling that God has placed upon us as citizens of the eternal kingdom. The church is to serve the world, to as Peter says it, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You're free because you're citizens of the kingdom of God, but you also live in this world as servants of God. Honor everyone, he says, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. The church is here, just as Israel was intended to be in the Old Testament, the church is here as a spiritual kingdom representing the kingdom of God. We are the place where God rules by his word through his king, Lord Jesus, and we live by his will in submission to him. We are to be the salt of the earth as a preservative. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be the light of the world. We are to be a city set on a hill. That's what we owe as citizens. Taxes, prayer, submission, and service. But what do we owe to God? This is where it all comes into context. What do we owe to God? Well, what image is on the coin? Caesar. Well, then give the coin to Caesar that he requires. What image is on you? The very image of God. That is your value. Even in our fallenness, we bear something of the image of God, but that's the beauty of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to die to pay the penalty for our sins, to wash us clean, and then to recreate us into the image of God himself, to make us Christ-like. So we are in the image of God by creation. Sin has distorted that image of God, but Christ has saved us and is in the process of restoring us into that image of perfection. And because we bear the image of God by creation and redemption, therefore we owe everything 
to him. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then Paul goes on in the beginning of chapter 12 to say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He is our creator and he is our redeemer. He alone is owed our worship. And we owe to him our ultimate and unqualified obedience. We submit to King Jesus. Remember what I said a couple weeks ago. Jesus is Lord is the first creed of the early church. And it continues to be the primary creed of the church today. Jesus is Lord. That has huge implications for every aspect of our lives. Everything that we are and everything that we own. And he is the Lord of all the Caesars. He is the Lord of all the government rulers. It isn't a separation of church and state and it isn't a separation of the kingdom of God and kingdom of men as though they are divide or separate from one another. The kingdom of the men are under the lordship of Christ. Whether they acknowledge it or not and whether they submit to it or not. And so that's why when the authorities over the apostles in the early church told them not to preach the gospel, they responded in Acts chapter 4 and 5 by saying, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then when they tried again, they said, we must obey God rather than men. We, this is the principle, and it's very difficult to apply sometimes in this fallen world. But the principle is that Jesus is Lord, and we will submit to the earthly Caesars unless the earthly Caesars demand that we disobey Jesus as Lord. We always obey Jesus. Civil authorities cannot demand of us something that would require us to disobey God. Now, we can look at all kinds of circumstances where it's difficult to know how that applies, but that's the principle that you're always trying to apply. Jesus is Lord even over the earthly authorities that are over me. And so we come back to voting. Voting is a rare privilege of American citizenship. It's a rare privilege to be able to have a voice in how your leaders lead you. And it is a testimony to you who are citizens of the kingdom of God, who serve under the Lord Jesus, to bear testimony to what the purpose of human government is so that God can carry out the work of salvation of totally depraved people like you and me. How you should you vote on Tuesday? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Understand that principle that civil government is here to restrain wickedness and maintain order until Christ returns to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God, to do away with sin once and for all, to do away with death and suffering once and for all, and to establish the perfect kingdom. There are so many political ads, and they almost always appeal to our depraved nature, to what's good for us. They'll promise to lower our taxes so that they can buy our vote. They'll promise to take away the tuition that we owe for our college education. 
in order to buy our vote. They will appeal to our selfish, self-centered nature to gain our vote, but that's not what drives us. We are not to vote for what's best for us as an individual. We are to vote what's best for the world, what's best according to what God's word teaches us is best. And we must never to civil government as our provider. That's not what God intended it to be. It is here to restrain wickedness, to maintain justice, and to provide order in society. It is not meant to take the place of God and so resist the promises of politicians who put themselves in the place of God. Government should restrain the effects of racism, but it cannot change hearts and eliminate racism. Government should protect the poor and the powerless from injustice, but it cannot eradicate the reasons in human hearts for stealing and oppression and poverty. Government should punish the taking of life from the point of conception until natural death, but it cannot stop murder by laws because murder is deep in the heart of sinners. The church is the one given the sword of the spirit. The government has the sword to restrain wickedness, but we are given the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the gospel, which can free men from that sin, that can show the way to life, that can show the way to living under the lordship of Christ. We have the message that is the hope of this dark, fallen world. And we need to tell people to look to God, not just as a provider, but the one who is the redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can make us faithful citizens of an eternal kingdom with a hope of full salvation because of what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us principles in your word to guide us in making the many difficult decisions of life. And Lord, when it comes to political policies and promises, it does take wisdom. Give us that wisdom as we try to use the vote and the influence that we have in talking with others to speak for the good of sinners like us, to speak to the good of our community, to speak to the good of our nation by the principles of your word. Help us to use whatever influence we have wisely in submission to you. And Lord, we pray that you'd bring revival to your church, reformation to your church, and renewal to our land as people's hearts are changed by the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.